In this episode, we chat with Robert M. Lee, the founder and CEO of Dragos, which is an industrial cybersecurity company that detects and responds to threats in industrial control systems. Dragos has raised over $360 million and is backed by BlackRock, Coke Disruptive Technologies, Canaan Partners, and others. Robert M. Lee is a recognized pioneer in the industrial security incident response and threat intelligence community. He gained his start in security as a U.S. Air Force Cyber Warfare Operations Officer. He went on to build the industrial community's first dedicated monitoring and incident response class at the SANS Institute. We hope you enjoyed the show. Robert, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us uh, today. It's a delight to be with you. You know, cybersecurity is something that we have long been interested in kind of undertaking on the podcast. It's something that's top of mind for, for everyone. And in recent years, it's become more and more of, of the main topic. So really excited to kind of get into Dragos, your background, and some of the kind of big issues that you're, you're tackling. Maybe what we could do to start off is if you could just tell us a little bit to acquaint our audience, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and Dragos. Yeah. So, you know, I started out my career on the Air Force side of the house, but spent most of my time over the National Security Agency. And, and when I got there, the, the guidance was go find the unknown unknowns. I was like, what does that mean? They're like, we have no idea, but just go find out new stuff. So I was like, oh, okay. And so I had a background and a very small background in, in building control systems, water filtration units, wind turbines, things like that. I was like, okay, well, what are we doing about industrial control systems or ICS? And they're like, what's that? I'm like, oh God, yeah, okay, never mind. We're going to focus there. It's kind of everything. And so we ended up focusing the team there and finding that there was a variety of state actors and others targeting industrial control system environments, whether it was the the big couple names you're always familiar with, but also state groups that we didn't even think had cyber programs were already active targeting industrial control environments. And and to familiarize the audience and everybody with these, it's quite interesting where essentially everything um, that interacts with physics has some aspect of control systems. And when you talk about cybersecurity, a lot of cybersecurity investments over the years have been focused on apps and cloud and what we would generally refer to as enterprise IT or information technology. Um, the reality is what makes a lot of these companies critical, what generates the revenue, what holds the intellectual property, what makes them important in national security, all that stuff is the industrial control environments. And they've never really been invested in it at all. And that probably was okay 15, 20 years ago. But as 10 years back and on really was not okay, because a lot of these environments are getting connected up in ways that never have been before. Call it digital transformation, industry 4.0, whatever you know, kind of buzzword you want to throw at it. And so really where, where Dragos came onto the scene is I had left the government in 2015. I got called up to lead the investigation and the first ever cyber attack to take down electric power systems, which took place in Ukraine in 2015. And as I briefed the CEOs and executives and White House and kind of everybody after the, that attack, it was very clear that a lot of chief information officers and chief information security officers were very IT background, and they wanted to copy and paste their IT security strategies into these operations environments. And that would uh, not, not be good and uh, probably would take down more sites than uh, the Russians and, and Chinese and Iranians combined. We put a focus on, let's build a firm, a technology firm explicitly focused on industrial control system security. And so, yeah, founded the company in 2016 and, and been doing that since. Well, it seems like for a, a layperson, it seems quite daunting to kind of undertake industrial cybersecurity and protecting, you know, government, government agencies, large industrial companies from impending threats 
you know, and actually some from some people who are very sophisticated. You know, we hear about kind of attacks coming from you know Russia and other places. You know, like that. How did you kind of you know start? You know, what was the? Did you start with a one product, one solution, and first go deep in that area? Fast forward, you're a big company today. You raise a lot of money. Interested in in understanding the early days? Yeah, I think it's a struggle to even understand what all industrial is. Um, because everybody can think of, oh, electric utilities. And then they go, oh, okay, well, gas pipelines. And oh, well, water too. And it's like, guys, it's it's everything. It's manufacturing, food and beverage, pharma, chemical, paper and pulp, uh, rail, aviation. It's, again, anything that deals with physics. We generally say it's everything but financial services and like banks. But even they have a lot of control systems, building automation systems and similar. And it's hard outside of that kind of niche community even though it literally runs all of the world and all the revenue and all the things that happen. I mean, you talk about the cloud. Well, what do you think powers the cloud? It's the data centers with all their control systems, right? But it's kind of hard to convince people of that. And I remember when I founded the company, like I was told, oh, you got to go talk to venture capitalists. I was like, oh, okay. And I, you know, I'm a kid from Alabama. I don't really know all that world. And I went out to Sand Hill Road and did all that that everybody else does. And you know, it was an hour-long conversation. And 50 minutes of it was, what's industrial? And what's the size of the market of industrial? And 10 minutes on, okay, well, why, well, what is Dragos doing and why are you important? And I found it, I don't know, I don't want to like make fun of too many people because I'm sure that's like the easiest thing in the world is to make fun of venture capitalists and that's not fair. <laughs> it was really stupid, to be frank, of we're innovative and disruptive and we want to invest in all this innovation. Oh, you're different. No, I don't like that. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, you don't fit in the spreadsheet with the rule of 40. I'm like, what What are you doing? And so, yeah, it was, it was a little weird to get started. So how we did it and kind of how we started off, to your point, was really focusing. And I think everybody wants like, what's this horizontal solution that you can sell to everybody for the minimum amount of investment and all this other crap? Or are you using artificial intelligence so that you're efficient? I'm like, what? No. Like, we're using humans who know what to do and we're codifying that in software. They're like, oh, that sounds bad. I'm like, but it's it works. Like it, that's that's what you should do. And so I think you know, early days were definitely a struggle in the venture community, but we just kept to our guns and we said, look, we're gonna start in the electric community. We're gonna go solve that problem. We've got one technology solution. I'm not looking to build a bunch, but I'm gonna make sure it really satisfies their use cases first. And we did that and we did extremely well in that community and saw a lot of reaction very, very positively. And then we said, okay, well, we did really well on electric. Let's continue to grow that, but let's focus on oil and gas challenges. Did that one. Great. Okay, now chemical. Okay, well, now pharma. Hey, we have enough resources. Now let's knock out food and beverage paper and pulp and aviation and rail next. And so we almost went vertical by vertical, even though the technology itself works in any of them and doesn't need really a lot of modification. When you talk about kind of the the content that goes into it and the go-to-market motion and the expertise and the team to be the ally and partner for those firms going through this journey. That was the piece that was really important to do well. And it was very much not in any of the venture playbooks that got thrown at us. And we were very fortunate to find folks along the way that wanted to resource us that weren't from those communities. And again, I'm not, I'm not trying to put everyone down. There's a lot of firms along the way that we found that were actually really phenomenal. But you know, our our A round was led by Energy Impact Partners, which was a collection of power companies that wanted to fund new technologies. The B round was Canaan, which is, yeah, they're classic kind of Silicon Valley firm, but they were heavily into pharma and they understood those needs. The C round was National Grid as a power company and Coke. 
you know, and the Coke disruptive technologies with all of their industries. You know, the D round was the first time we kind of went outside of that. And it was BlackRock. And I, I think that was, you know, I love my my other investors, but BlackRock was probably my favorite interaction of all of them, where I get ready to do the D round. We weren't anticipating it. They preempted us on it, but had the call and said, okay, well, I don't even have a pitch deck because I don't have this ready, but sure, let me let me explain industrial and the TAM. And they're like, what? We're BlackRock. We know the size of industrial. Like, it's huge. You just tell us why you're the best. And I'm like, oh man, I can do that. And so it was... It was the first conversation I had, which got to focus on what do we do, not what's the TAM. And I thought that was a very awesome conversation, obviously led us to, to where we are today. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're bringing up this, you know, your story and your path with investors, because it really brings to light the importance of having the right investors, because having the wrong investors can very negatively impact the way you steer the company. And by you figuring out early on that venture, traditional venture was not the right route, you were able to steer the company in the right direction. And you are where you are today, raising this big capital and having this great company because you had the right investors. So I guess, you know, shifting to that positive aspect, you mentioned some of the great things your investors have helped you with. You know, what do you think has has been the kind of key benefit to partnering with the folks that you've partnered with? I think every interaction, I try to learn something. And I think everybody always says that. And it can be hard, actually. But the good news is, even with the investors we didn't take, there's a lot of things I learned, you know? And even though it may sound like I'm kind of coming off quipping about uh, VCs, like there was a lot of really good ones along the way, too. I think in the A round, there was 124 that reached out to us for me to pitch. And 124... Yeah, there was some there was some wasted meetings, you know. But there was a couple that really got. I remember Martin over in Andreessen. We never took a penny from Andreessen. Martin sat down with me for a long time. Hey, here's how I view markets. Hey, I'm, we're not going to invest, but God, I love what you're doing. Let me just tell you my view. Sid over at Foundation Capital, same thing, right? There's there's been plenty of people along the way that have gone out of their way to try to be helpful, even when they didn't necessarily see the market at the same time we did. But probably what's most useful about the venture community for me is uh, on the board level. And look, Energy Impact Partners and Coke kind of stand alone and they've literally driven business value and all that. But you don't really go to VCs normally with, help me find customers. Like if that's your problem, you probably aren't ready for a VC. But it's normally help me navigate these things that I don't know. First time founder, CEO, what's going to come up next? What's going to get me in trouble six years from now on a term sheet that I shouldn't accept it? You know, we've turned down higher valuations from firms that we didn't think were going to be aligned with what we wanted to do to go to somebody that, that did. And, and you know, that was very, very meaningful in our journey. But to that point, I think it really is the board. I view the board as an awesome opportunity to have safe, closed conversations, a hard-hitting, we're all going to disagree about a bunch of things, but we all want the same thing. So how do we, how do we have that? And how do you do most of the board meeting work out of the boardroom? I have found that the venture folks that have been on our board have been wonderful in providing insights of what they see in other companies, what they see in terms of insights, the market movements, and honestly, you know, no pun intended, been a good sounding board. Now, you still got to be careful with that. I remember when the pandemic happened, I had two board members come in right when it started and said, you got to lay off 40% of your staff. And I was like, no, but also why? Oh, well, we're on other boards and that's what they're doing. I'm like, but what are you trying to accomplish? Like, forget the prescriptive nature. What's the outcome you want to drive? We want to maintain cash flow because the next year and a half could be really rough. Like, okay, 
well, what's the cash flow we want? Let me devise a plan to get there, but don't prescribe actions from a board level because that's not what a board is there for. Um, and so you still have to balance it, but I, but I found those interactions to be extremely useful and honestly have helped me be a better CEO. You recently took in a big round. I think it was in the order of a couple hundred million. Yeah, we did um, 200 at a 1.5 pre, so a, a 1.5, 1. 1.7 post billion round, which, you know, that's pretty good, I guess. <laughs> and where is the, uh, where's the capital going to be directed towards? Look, the right answer is go to market, go to market, go to market. And sure, we put a lot of resources there, but we're a tech company. And I think that's one of the areas I think some of the maybe the, the venture folks that we didn't partner with, that I didn't agree with, obviously they got a different point of view and, and, and they're not here to represent that. But there was a lot of pressure from folks on, well, you're not, you shouldn't put any more in engineering after a C round. Like you, gotta, you just got to go to go to market. And like, dude, you're a tech company. You have to constantly be enhancing and focusing on your product. That's your big value proposition. You'll get efficiencies at scale, but like don't over obsess about that early on. Like, yeah, please do do all of it. So the correct answer is pour it into go to market. The, the real answer is across the company scaling. And some teams are scaling slower like engineering than maybe sales and marketing, but but you're taking those resources to put in everywhere. And especially as we go and open up new industries and new markets and we opened up our, our office in Dubai, opened up one in Melbourne, opened up a location in UK. Like all, all of that is capital intensive and it's useful to be able to have venture to be able to do that. Your background is obviously very technical. I'm wondering on the management side, how you've been able to kind of adapt and stay in this role of CEO and really lead the company and, and, and grow in an accelerated fashion. Are, are there some key things that you pay attention to in order to manage the whole organization well? Yeah. So I think number one is a lot of humility on learning from people around you. Like I, I've got a very good executive team who's been there and done that. And so I tell them when I hire them, like, hey, perfect world. You'd have an amazing CEO that could coach and mentor you. That's not this relationship. You know, I'll provide input, but I'm a first-time founder CEO. The downside is you got to be coaching and mentoring your, your staff. And you're going to be coaching and mentoring me on what you see. I'm never going to have the privilege to be a head of marketing, head of sales, head of engineering. So I need to learn from you. And so I established that early on with the exec team and it's worked out really, really well there too. The other aspect of that too is, is ignoring bad inputs. I think a lot of people talk about culture and all these things as if it's like this magical thing that you put in a handbook, but it's day-to-day actions. And some of the worst part of day-to-day actions, the things that make you the sickest are the things that are most important, like firing people. You get people that are not a good fit in your culture. We've all worked in places where we're the boss or not, where we had a great work environment and we were some jerk we were forced to work with. And it was, you know, HR was slow on something, whatever else. And you're, you ruin half a year quickly. And then you start seeing attrition from people that just don't want to be in that working environment. And so for us, you know, we put a lot of emphasis on transparency and candidness. And we are kind of our four tenets at the company's candidness, transparency, respect, and assume no malicious intent. But to me, I think if I open up everything I'm doing, it's okay for us to disagree, but you never have to wonder what I'm doing or why I did it. So I do everything from briefing board decks to the company to any decision, hit me up in Slack, whatever you want, just immediately available and transparent on every single interaction, even our pay. You know, we post pay on the website and post it internally, list the pay right on the job. Hey, this is exactly what this is. It's one number, no negotiations. Here you go. This is what it is. There's no questions. And so it kills a lot of what happens in remote work environments or young startups where you have maybe distrust or, or secondary narratives or back channels. It just immediately gets rid of all that. And I think that was very useful. And then again, there's plenty of bad advice. I remember 
one of the first venture folks uh, that we took money from, not EIP, but another one pushed on us and said, well, you're a technical CEO. We should hire a COO to support you and, and do that. I was like, that doesn't make any sense. What are you trying to solve for? What am I not doing that you want me to do? Let me know. Well, usually technical founders have a CEO. And I'm like, so there, there's like this playbook aspect that people want to pretend that exists. And I would, to any founder out there, I would just throw that away. Like know yourself. If, if you're having troubles with that, it's not a bad thing to bring in a COO. But if you're not, don't just do it because they've seen it before. And so there was plenty of choices that we ignored along the way that were probably more impactful than any choice we did make. We're coming up on time here. And I typically like to ask a couple closing questions. And this one maybe relates to what you were just talking about and how you, you lead and really think about what you're trying to solve for. Is there a leader that you know, it could be across in any domain? What's interesting here is you've worked in different domains. Any leader that you think is particularly effective and one that you try to emulate? Yeah, there is. You wouldn't know him though, but uh, there was a, a gentleman that I worked for, Colonel Gaudet, uh, in the military side of the house. And it was a lot of these leadership principles that I, I thought was very keen. If I could think of somebody publicly, I'd probably harken back to like the Colin Bowles and folks like that that have constantly put that service-oriented leadership in front. And you know, I, I kind of roll my eyes about a little of it at the same time that I'm praising it, where... I see like these leadership books and it's like leaders eat last or like your people come first. And and to me in the military, and I hope this doesn't come off as arrogant, but it's like, no shit. You know, it's like, what, what's the lesson here? Like, did you expect that this was about you? Because it's not like, well, how, how did we have that disconnect? And so there's a lot of basic leadership skills that are surprising to me that they're in books. And I think that's my bias coming out of the military. Everyone's got their experiences and biases and no one's better than anybody else. But on the topic of like, if you're an officer, like I was an officer in the military. As an officer, I was the least important person in that unit, right? Like my parents were enlisted. They're the ones that do the real work. Same concept. The CEO, in my opinion, is like the least important person in that company. It's like, I'm here to be advanced HR. Like I'm here to help you achieve the mission, not to think that I'm the person that knows it. And speaking of books, that brings us to our last question. Particularly interested to hear your answer on this because you seem like a very thoughtful person. Is there a good book that you would recommend? It could be one that has had profound impact in your life. It could be, it could maybe not have, but you just thought it was particularly good. I generally like reading things outside of your expertise, something that's new, right? I mean, I, I think Charles Koch wrote a book on management principles and, and uh, MDM. And I thought that was actually a phenomenal book. And I think when people hear the name Charles Koch, sometimes they have a reaction one way or the other. The guy, I've met the guy, he's nothing but a phenomenal leader. Um, I thought his book was phenomenal. But I like reading stuff, again, that's kind of outside the scope. So William Lawrence is on strategy. Phenomenal. Thomas Ridd has a book uh, called Rise of the Machines that looks at the early days of espionage around things that then eventually evolved into cybersecurity. That was a phenomenal book. There's plenty of them out there. But um, I'll also add that all of us should remember that Calvin and Hobbes is also a phenomenal read and can help bring a little humility in our day-to-day life. Excellent. Well, that's a great note to end on. Thank you for those recommendations. Well, Robert, thank you again for joining us today and sharing your insights. I, I know our audience will find this very helpful. Thank you. 